Welcome back, everybody. It's CP Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. We're brought to you by Campus 2 Canton. But the man, the myth, the legend, he makes it all happen over here at CFP Winning Edge. Nicholas Ian Allen is, of course, here at CFP Winning Edge on the Twitter machine. And Xavier Trish, father of the year, at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E, on the Twitter machine. We are back for another episode. And, of course, once again, the second we turn the microphones off, Something wild and um, unpredictable happens. This time we finish our head coach, uh, first year head coach draft. We had 30 picks, the biggest draft that we've ever done um, in the five seasons that we put together these drafts, right? And then another head coach steps away and it's Georgia State's head coach, Sean Elliott, uh, steps down. Uh, we have, I believe, the strength and conditioning coach stepped in here. Uh, Nick, I know you and Xavier talked about this on the new show, the daily one that you guys do, that you do every single day. Good morning, college football over on Can the Campus to Canton YouTube. Uh, but, of course, we're going to have to talk about this here today. So uh, let's just kick it off right there, Nick. Your level of surprise that this happened, obviously, kind of coming out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, we, we thought we were safe, right? That's why we... Uh, did the the draft finally thought uh, once that head coach uh, position at UCLA had been filled that that uh, we were in a good place. But, um, you know, this one was a shocker uh, even more than than uh, usual because Georgia State had started spring practice was, you know, had, had already had two practices um, was the, I believe there was a scheduled third practice the day uh, that Sean Elliott stepped down. That practice was of course canceled. The NCAA uh, granted a, a waiver. I'm not sure exactly why GSU needed a waiver, but I, I did see a note of that, that uh, they were able to, um, you know, pause their spring practices and, and wait until this played out, uh, which only makes sense. You know, whoever you hire, you want to give them the most uh, spring practices to evaluate the new roster, things of that nature. Um, but yeah, you touched on it, kind of a, an odd uh, pick maybe to uh, promote or, or, you know, put uh, strength coach Mike Sirigano as the interim head coach. Um, but this situation, as we record here Wednesday late afternoon, uh, we we don't know exactly who the, the top candidates are. There were um, some reports out early. Uh, Xavier and I discussed those a little bit on Friday. Um, but because this is us recording on a Wednesday evening and, and we usually publish Thursday morning. I'm sure by the time you listen to this, Georgia state will have a new head coach and, and uh, you know, wh whatever we say will be a little bit out of date, but um, overall it's a, it's a bit of a strange situation. And I know there were some personal reasons why this move made a little bit more sense digging into it than perhaps it did when we first learned about it because of Sean Elliott's family living in Columbia him going back to South Carolina. I know there are some quotes from the uh, press conference where he's introduced again in Columbia uh, where he, he spoke about, you know, some of the specifics beyond that also touched on, you know, that Georgia state lost a lot of key players to the transfer portal. Didn't use that as excuse. Didn't say that was the reason why he made this move. Um, but you know, uh, it is one reason perhaps that uh, it is definitely a reason Georgia State ranks as low as they do in our returning production calculations right now and why expectations aren't particularly high uh, for GSU from a one loss projection standpoint this year, uh, we don't think. So uh, maybe Elliot saw an opportunity to move on where he might have been, you know, his seat is getting a little warmer there in Atlanta might have, you know, if, if they, uh, if the Panthers had a, a rough season, perhaps, you know, he might be looking for a new job anyway, but um, altogether surprising situation and the timing for the players uh, is, uh, is particularly tough because, you know, they'd already turned the, the page to 2024 looking to get back to a bowl game, a lot of new, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of 
playing time up for grabs uh, at Georgia Southern. Got some new transfers coming in, especially at the running back position. A couple of interesting names. Um, and now no head coach. So uh, I will be very, very interested to see how it all plays out from here uh, moving forward. Uh, Xavier, obviously an alum to, to Georgia State here. Uh, I mean, what is what is happening? I I text I text you and Nick, and I just I was kind of awestruck because this is not the first time that this has happened this offseason. It is just so surprising to me that even I know it's a changing landscape and it's harder to be a head coach now than it ever has been these guys are very well compensated for their jobs. I know there were extenuating circumstances here for Sean Elliott. His family didn't want to move out of Columbia. I don't know. It just seems really weird for a guy to toss away a head coaching job to go become a special teams coordinator again, even though it's less stress and the money's still great. I just don't get it. So uh, it's a big opportunity that it seems to be thrown away here. Uh, and I was personally very, very surprised. Your thoughts. No, I was as well, and and I talked about it on the show on my, on was that Tuesday morning with with Nick that you know I, I believe that it was a family decision. At the end of the day, like you mentioned, his his family had not left South Carolina throughout throughout his entire tenure at Georgia State. Um, it didn't seem poised to either, um, and that's you know when when you, when you get down to family conversations and things like that then you kind of get into a gray area where I'm choosing family over football or over status or over a position to an extent. Right. Um, and that's, you can't really argue with that. You know, his kids are getting to the age now where he probably wants to be around them a little bit more. Right. His kids were fairly young when he joined the staff at Georgia state. Um, his kids are now going to be moving into probably middle school and one might be almost going to high school here in a couple of, in a year or two, uh, if not a couple of years. So there's another, so that's another reason why, why we see all the time where coaches do not want to, um, you know, don't want to miss out on some of the more important years in a kid's life. And, you know, that is uh, high school and obviously middle school. So, yeah, I mean, I can't necessarily blame him for leaving for family reasons in particular. Um, it just really, the, the timing is just exceptionally bad. Uh, like, you know, you, you could have, I don't know if you could have made the decision sooner or if there was extenuating circumstances that made you push up your decision. Maybe you were going to go one more year. I, I'm not entirely sure, but it definitely felt like you know, it was it was definitely felt like it was out of nowhere. Um, and that's really where, once again, you kind of just have to you kind of have to figure it out kind of on the fly. If you're Georgia State, um, this is not a university that I think was expecting this. Yeah. You know, to Nick's credit to what he said. Yeah. Maybe his hot his seat was a little hot and he was able to get out maybe before it all went, you know, kind of uh, went down. But I mean, Sean has been the most successful coach in Georgia State history by a large margin. Um, he's beaten an SEC team, almost B2, probably should have B2, um, and playing Auburn, um, you know, a couple of years later. You know, just like, you know, all things considered, the, the man had done as much as you possibly could at a university that young. Uh, but, you know, somebody's going to have an opportunity to kind of change, you know, the the culture going forward and, and see what they can do with, with a university that realistically is still very young in the eyes of, you know, collegiate athletics, right? This is a university that's, you know, younger than me by a, almost a decade and some change. It makes me feel old when I think about how young Georgia State is as a football program. Um, you know, I was in high school, I think, when Georgia State started its football program. So, you know, when, when you look at it that way, you understand that, you know, there's there's a ton of positives from them as far as being in the Atlanta area, right? As far as, um, you know, the money being pumped into that school right now, especially in the athletic department as a whole is, is you know, starting to really kick up over the last couple of years since COVID. Um, and you've got an opportunity to to recruit in one of the best areas in the country as far as Metro Atlanta and the Atlanta area. Uh, so you should be able to put together a formidable team um, at the very least, right? Um, you know, so I, I'm i not a fan of the timing. Look, do what you got to do as a guy who has a kid now. You got to do whatever you can for your kids. I don't I don't blame you. You know, maybe selfishly, maybe uh, college Zavi with no kids would be perturbed more than what I am. But look, if it, if, it, if it means making the family, making the wife and, and the kids happy, you got to do it to a degree. So I respect Sean Elliott for his, his decision. Um, the timing of it could have been better. But, you know, look, sometimes timing, you don't always control some of the timing that is brought, given to you for sure. Yeah. Well, this, uh, sorry, real quick. This opportunity opened up because another sitting FBS head coach at, at Buffalo, Mo Linquist, uh, took a job as an assistant uh, position, uh, coach position at, uh, at Alabama. 
And, you know, it's kind of one domino led to the other. Pete Limbo, who had been the special teams coordinator, moved on to Buffalo, opened up this spot. And Elliot, uh, I, I, it yeah, was at least little... going to Bama. Those guys are offered <laughs> enormous, you know, programs after that, especially if they move up within Bama. Like, I, I get, you know, look, I understand there's many things that go into a decision like this. I just still... I still was surprised uh, that this happened, you know, um, anyway, uh, who do you think, you know, it, the timing that Xavier mentioned here also is an enormous factor because they were in the middle of their spring practices and ramping up for their spring game. And they had to get a waiver from the NCAA to, you know, figure this out and, and um, delay their practice because of Sean Elliott leaving. So um, I guess, you know, just how, how bad is this and how weird is this on a scale of one to 10, Nick? And, and you know, who, who are the options to take over permanently? Because a strength and conditioning head coach or strength and conditioning coach who has now moved to the head coach spot. I don't expect him to be the head coach, you know, by the time the season kicks off. Correct. No, no, I wouldn't. Um, I think that move, I mean, do you hear it? thrown around a little bit that the strength coach is around the team just as much and probably more than the head coach, especially at this time of year. Um, so to a certain degree, yeah, you know, it, it, it looks a little weird on paper, but it makes a, a decent amount of sense. They can continue to do their offseason workout program with uh, Sirigano as, as uh, you know, overseeing everything. Um, uh, just a, a strangeness factor, the, the fact that spring practice started, I don't remember anything like this ever happening. I mean, we've seen uh, some, you know, late summer uh, firings, coaching changes. That's usually because somebody got themselves in trouble and, and uh, you know, had to, to uh, go away, basically. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. It's possible I'm forgetting something, but uh, this seems fairly unprecedented as far as a sitting head coach uh, in the middle of preparing his team for the next season in spring practice, uh, resigning and, and moving to another job, especially for, um, you know, a, a position coach spot. So it uh, seems unprecedented there, if unless I'm just completely forgetting something. But uh, on the topic of potential candidates, uh, one name that jumped out on a couple of lists that I saw in Xavier and I uh, ran through a couple of those in the early days after this news broke, but Brian McClendon apparently isn't going to be uh, getting this job. The, the He was the wide receivers coach at Georgia, uh, highly respected uh, in college football, has bounced around a few different places, a lot of uh, quality programs, has been a coordinator at times was, I think, passing game coordinator maybe at Georgia also, uh, but he is taking a job with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I know Del McGee, Georgia running backs coach, has been mentioned. There are a couple of internal candidates uh, who could potentially uh, get a look. We talked about um, on staff, uh, Chad Staggs is a, a name that was on, I believe, the uh, Panther talk hotboard list, the 247 site, um, uh, former uh, offensive coordinator Josh Stepp, who, who had been promoted to OC before leaving in the spring of 2022 uh, to take a, a job at Cincinnati. Um, Arkansas running backs coach Jimmy Smith was one. I know there was a list that The Athletic put out as well that, that mentioned a couple of other different names. But um, since these lists came out on on you know, Thursday, Friday, whenever it was shortly after the news broke, I haven't seen a whole lot of detailed reporting or really too much as far as rumors. Uh, again, it's possible I, I just am missing something, but uh, maybe uh, maybe Xavier knows better than I might have heard uh, some updates to some of these names. Um, but it seems like it got fairly quiet fairly quickly. Uh, and, and I'm not sure personally what direction this this search is going, whether they're going to look for an internal candidate, just sort of try to keep some level of continuity um, or, or just, you know, 
try to try to keep that from completely derailing or, or forcing somebody to start completely over? Uh, or do you use this as an opportunity to make a switch, bring in, you know, an SEC assistant, something like that for a first time head coaching opportunity? Um, somebody, you know, in the McClendon mold who's highly respected or Dale McGee mold and highly respected as a recruiter who really can take advantage of some of those um, real assets that being in downtown Atlanta uh for georgia state you know the assets that, that that brings along with it access to high school talent also an opportunity i think in the transfer portal something that uh to me personally georgia state i think should be a little bit more active than they have been bringing back uh you know four-star level recruits who end up at places like georgia or tennessee or um you know uh, all around the country people come in and recruit atlanta bringing in some of those players that looking for a little bit more uh, playing time or, or want to get closer to home a year or two into their college career, similar to the way we've seen teams like SMU and Houston and South Florida um, uh, capitalize uh, through the portal and in, in sort of a similar situation. Um, maybe somebody, you know, like a Brian McClendon seems like he's off the board, but using him as an example, a guy who's got a lot of relationships uh, with recruits who, you know, go on and, and maybe play elsewhere, but um, they're still on on good terms. Had a you know good vibe going during the re recruiting process, and may want to reconnect at a second uh, place like a, a Georgia State as an option. Um, to me, that makes a certain amount of sense as well. If you don't go the the continuity route of just you know, promoting stags or, or uh, somebody else who's, who's already in house. Xavier, do you have any other rumors from your sources or, and, and who do you want to take over uh, as a head coach here? McClendon was kind of my first guy. Um, I understood he was kind of in, in, you know, rumored about, uh, but then obviously takes a Tampa job. And so I wasn't no Cortez Hankton was another guy that I really, really liked. He was at, uh, higher on my list. Um, obviously he got NFL, um, interviews as far as being an offensive coordinator this year, we saw what he was able to do with Jane Daniels and Malik neighbors. So I would really like to see maybe what his imagination would go, uh, or how far his imagination would go, you know, with Georgia state. Um, Dale McGee is another guy who maybe, you know, is on that cusp, but not somebody with any concrete evidence. Um, I've really, for right now, I've really not heard much, um, honestly. Um, that's, that's probably the problem. Um, uh, that's, that's a little concerning that I haven't really heard uh, even of, of, of a genuine shortlist. Well, it's late in the process, right? So I guess at this point, you why know, not, why not take all the time that you have, right. And, and uh, use it to your advantage. A name right. I today that I thought that was interesting, um, was Skip Holtz. <laughs> he's been coaching at the USFL level the last couple of years and has won back-to-back -back USFL championships, um, coached at the G5 level for a large majority of his career um, with, with, with success um, and has the ability to obviously take a job at Georgia state with real, no ramifications of rule, you know, of really putting anybody else out to dry outside of a, you know, the USFL, um, which I think would not necessarily be all that much of a, their, their season has not yet to start. Uh, but would be an interesting fit um, if they were able to get him there. Um, so, yeah, that that was the name today that I was just like, hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, and, and like I said, you're late in the process. Uh, why not use it to your advantage? You don't have to hire someone tomorrow. Yeah, you want this hire to be fast because of continuity and all that. But you know, make the right hire. Take your time. Take a breath. Uh, that that's the one thing that you know having a guy step down at this period kind of gives you is there's not a whole lot of other teams searching. So, uh, Nick. Yeah. So I'm, I'm scrolling through some of the message boards and, and there's, there's some interesting names being brought up a couple that, that caught my eye, uh, Willie Simmons, who was the head coach at Florida A&M, uh, had a lot of success left actually for the running backs, uh, coach job at Duke. Um, but he would he would be an interesting hire, very successful at FAMU. Um, uh, there are I think that's more of a speculative name that was that was maybe thrown out. Uh, a couple of others who certainly have ties to Georgia and the Atlanta area. Um, Jess Simpson, who was uh, when I was coaching 
high school football was the head coach at Buford High School. Uh, he's been a, a college position coach uh, for the last decade or so. Um, places like Miami, I think now he's at uh, – is he at Georgia Tech? Yeah, Georgia Tech D-line coach. Uh, seems like Georgia Tech offensive coordinator Buster Faulkner might be uh, 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 in the mix here. Um, he had been connected – uh, to a couple of other jobs earlier in the cycle. Uh, I see Chip Lindsay's name being mentioned. Uh, he was a high school coach in the Atlanta area um, at, uh, I think, Lassiter High School uh, around the time that that I was in high school and college. Um, he's most recently been, uh, is the coordinator, offensive coordinator at North Carolina, um, had been the head coach at Troy and an OC at, at uh, UCF and, and Auburn, among other places. Um, so there, there are some interesting names and, and uh, the fact that uh, some of the names that, whether it's speculative, whether it's some um, uh, reporting or names that, that folks are hearing or potentially involved, um, if they go in, in, the direction of somebody who has some real ties to the high school uh, scene in in Georgia and in, in Atlanta, uh, in the metro Atlanta area. Uh, that to me seems like a smart move long term. Um, but again, coming back to the timing, it's really tough. You know, if you take over a job like this as late in the process as it is uh, to have to go in and try to build that infrastructure of recruiting and, and rebuild this roster potentially with the spring uh, transfer window opening up in, in uh, uh, what, six weeks or so, isn't it? Isn't it in April? I don't know. I have to double check that, but um, yeah, there, there's, there are some quality coaches out there and this is an attractive enough job. I think that they would be able to uh, land uh, a, a good head coach long-term, but whoever that head coach is, is taking uh, some risk by, by taking this job as, as late as it is in the cycle. A uh, little bit of updates on coordinators here. Uh, Georgia Southern, Georgia State's top rival. Uh, they lost their offensive coordinator this week. Brian Ellis was one of a few assistants added to Kalen DeBoer's uh, first Alabama staff. Looks like he's going to be taking care of tight ends over there. Um, the Eagles promoted Ryan Applin to OC shortly after the news broke that Ellis would be leaving. Um, Iowa State has yet to replace their OC, Nate. Uh, how do you say it, Nick? Is it Shielhaas? Uh, Skielhaas? I've been saying Shielhaas. Uh, okay. Former Illinois quarterback, so I probably should have remembered how to, to say it, but apologies if we mispronounce it. How, how many passes did he throw? Uh, that's my question. <laughs> he was more of a runner. He, he was a fun player to watch, though. Um, no, Shielhaas, uh, he left for the Rams, so Iowa State still... No OC in Western Michigan. They got a new defensive coordinator having promoted linebacker coach uh, Scott Power to replace Lou Esposito. Um, so a couple coordinators uh, playing musical chairs here, Nick. Yeah, yeah. The the Brian Ellis name, certainly, you know, at Campus to Canton with our, our fantasy-minded uh, thinking of, of coaching moves, uh, that, that raised an eyebrow or two because Georgia Southern – is on the uh, fairly high, extreme high end and uh, pass-heavy offense these days with Brian Ellis calling the plays there. Um, that's that's interesting because Alabama, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about Ryan Grubb moving from uh, Alabama briefly back to the Pacific Northwest to take the OC job with the Seattle Seahawks, but uh, that created a, an opening, obviously, in the Alabama staff. Uh, where Ellis sort of slots in. They promoted Nick Sheridan, who had been the tight ends coach, to offensive coordinator. There's a co-offensive coordinator as well. Um, the name escapes me right now. I apologize. But, um, you know, bringing in Ellis, who who is a, you know, pass-heavy uh, play caller, has a background at, uh, you know, Western Kentucky, I believe, um, was was part of the staff that uh, was, was such a... Uh, um, you know, the, the Bailey Zappi year there at, at Western Kentucky. Um, I mean, he was there much longer than that. He was he was there from 2014 to 2016 and then 2019 to 2021, but was co-OC with um, uh, Zach Kitley uh, that year where, where Bailey, Bailey Zappi was uh, there. So um, 
it's an interesting it's an interesting move and and promoting from within you would expect that Georgia Southern is going to stay fairly consistent on uh, offense as far as their uh, design play design offensive uh, philosophy goes um, but the the uh, Steelhaas uh, and, and again apologies if I'm butchering that but um, uh, really interesting note because or really interesting to see how that played out. He had been mentioned in a few head coaching searches early in the the cycle. Um, had also been mentioned, you know, as a potential uh, candidate at a couple of higher profile OC jobs. Um, moving on to the NFL is is. Uh, uh, you know, the shows that, that he's got, uh, that he's respected as a, uh, offensive mind play designer, things along those, uh, lines. And Iowa state, as we've mentioned before, is, is really, really high in our returning production rankings this year. They're number two overall, number one offensively in our adjusted returning production numbers. Uh, so, you know, this was a unit that was coming back largely intact, um, and seem to be poised to compete week in and week out in a new look Big 12. I also saw, I hadn't realized, but uh, multiple reactions to this news pointed out that Shilhas is, is uh, such a well-known recruiter, particularly in Kansas, in the Kansas City area, which, you know, a lot of folks might say, big deal. But, um, you know, Kansas has a, uh, a very rich junior college uh, history. Also, the Kansas City area uh, is, uh, you know, showing uh, more and more talent coming out of that area. And Iowa State's done well in, in that part of the country, recruiting-wise, finding some under-the-radar players and, and developing them uh, into really good college football players. So uh, it'll be interesting to see not only how this move impacts, you know, this year as far as who's calling the plays and what that offense looks like, especially with so much coming back from last year, uh, but also what's it mean long-term, uh, especially if this move as it, it seems uh, to strike some folks is, is going to impact Iowa State's ability to recruit in a particular part of the country that's been good to them uh, moving forward as well. By the way, uh, Shieldhaus here, four-year starter for Illinois. Um, Fifty-five. Yes, we really touchdowns, should remember how to pronounce it. <laughs> Thirty-seven picks, uh, two thousand rushing yards over four years, with nineteen rushing touchdowns as well. So uh, very interesting. Uh, Xavier, your thoughts on some of these coordinators moving spots? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I felt like last year in particular, when you looked at Georgia Southern, they were starting to turn somewhat of a corner offensively. Um, so losing one of their offensive assistants is, you know, could, could damage what was going on there. Not maybe too 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 much of a degree, uh, but definitely something where, you know, as a Georgia State fan, I'm not necessarily all too mad about. Because <laughs> at times Georgia Southern's offense was really cooking, especially when they played us. I just got reminded us. I remind the fans too much of what happened in that game. So I did want to actually point out what Nick was alluded to when we were talking about the Kansas area. He did mention in particular uh, when you're talking about the recruiting aspect. Uh, obviously, everybody understands what Butler, your independent Butler Community College, is out in that direction. But really, I, I do want to stress. That is a recruiting hotbed for junior college more than I think people realize. Um, outside of really the Mississippi area and a couple of California JUCOs, Kansas is probably the best spot to find uh, your high-end JUCOs, just to give an idea of some of the players who have come through Kansas um, and hit in the, at the next level. Alvin Kamara is probably one of their best exports out of Butler Community College, um, who has played there. Um, he played at, uh, at, at Butler. Obviously, we know some of what we've seen as well um, with the uh, Last Chance U series, and we've seen independent Kansas in that area, um, you know, just to give people an idea of some of the you know the recruiting aspect that does go on in the Kansas area so losing a guy like Shieldhouse who has been a very good recruiter in that area could definitely be damaging as far as the recruiting circuit is concerned with Kansas being such a hotbed at the JUCO level I mean it's ridiculous I, the amount of kids and I mean you know what, I'll follow up on this with the amount of kids who end up at a Kansas Juco. That'll be four or five stars coming into the next year. Um, it is it is a big deal. So losing him could be massive on that regard, um, as well as obviously him being well-respected in other ways. But I'm looking at that one in particular as being like, hmm, 
I didn't know that he was as big of a recruiter in that area. But if you are well-respected in that area, it, it, it goes a long way uh, because you are able to pick up on a lot of big time talent, whether that be, you know, like I said, whether that be kids who, you know, don't who don't make it at the highest level or kids that maybe weren't academically eligible or had other reasons why they couldn't make it out of high school. Because uh, those are obviously kids who definitely go to the JUCO route as well. All right, uh, let's move on down the list here and talk about some transfer portal news. We had a big name enter the portal on Tuesday, SMU left tackle Marcus Bryant. He has started 29 games and had 42 appearances for the Mustangs since he started playing in 2020 as a true freshman. Um, and there's a couple of potential big-name teams sniffing around him, Nick. So tell us about Marcus Bryant and who is interested. Well, so uh, Bryant specifically, I mean, the timing on this is is uh, a little bit unexpected, but he's the second SMU starting offensive lineman to enter the portal in the last month or so. Branson Hickman, the starting center, uh, has, has also entered the portal. Neither uh, are committed, at least as we discuss it today. Still, SMU ranks number 12 in returning production overall. They're fourth in the ACC. Um, but the offensive line, you know, definitely in a, a worse spot now than it was uh, about a month ago where they're 52% of their offensive line snaps are back, 50% of starts. Uh, Bryant, as you mentioned, three-year starter, uh, was one of three starters along with Hickman and, and another uh, who had double-digit starts last season. Um, and it's, it's going to be a big loss. So I'm, I'm speculating a little bit on who might be interested, but, uh, as we'll discuss a little bit later, um, I've been digging around in some of our offensive line, uh, and defensive line, uh, returning production numbers specifically. And there are some pretty high profile teams, uh, who really look like on paper they need and could definitely use a, 6'8", 318-pound, all-conference left tackle. Uh, I think probably everybody just about would be interested um, in, in a player with that type of resume. Uh, but specifically, if we look at the very, very low end on just who is, is going to be completely rebuilding an offensive line, teams like Washington, Michigan, North Carolina are are ones that jump out a bit. Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't shock me if Alabama had interest as well. They're not on the extreme, extreme low end, and they already have done uh, a little bit to, as Michigan has, uh, try to try to fill a hole or two in the transfer portal. But um, beyond the, the likelihood that Marcus Bryant might get 100 scholarship offers, um, and despite the fact that uh, you know, at a place like SMU, he's a round rock native. So it's not like kind of going back to our Georgia state conversation a little bit. It's not like he's necessarily looking to get closer to home. Uh, most likely I would have to assume, um, uh, you know, that, that I think opens up the door to where he could go anywhere. I mean, Ohio state, uh, you know, na national championship contending teams that have, um, you know, you can never have too many offensive linemen, but uh, especially the teams that have uh, a, a hole or a need. Um, and to be quite honest, and I don't know any of the spe spe specifics on this, uh, but the teams that maybe have a little money to spend uh, are definitely going to be interested in Marcus Bryant. Yeah, I mean, uh, who couldn't use an upgrade at left tackle, oh. right? Uh, Xavier, I mean, wh where where would you like to see Marcus Bryant end up? The, the the Twitter trolling me immediately said Colorado, uh, who, who who they can need more offense, who, who doesn't need more offensive line talent, but them right, um, especially trying to protect their 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 highly valuable quarterback. So uh, that's definitely one. I, I, mean, I am looking at Georgia to a degree. Obviously, you're losing Amarius Mims into the draft, um, and you possibly need to pick up on left tackle. You also didn't have too much left tackle depth last year because um, when Amarius Mims went out, and it was shaky for a couple of weeks there, especially in the SEC championship game in particular. Um, obviously, Alabama uh, is a team that needs it. Um, and I think more than anything at this point, you know, when we're talking about moves like this, if I'm him, I'm looking at where I start right away. 
you know, I think, you know, you wouldn't be entering the portal if you didn't expect to start wherever you went to. And with Alabama losing a guy like Caden Proctor, uh, that could, you know, that could be a situation where he may look to go. Um, and Nick alluded to it. I, I, hey, look, he, he beat me to the punch. Where can I go make my NIL bag? You know, like where, like, I, I, you know, where, where am I going to go right now as a guy with his resume, right? Being an all AAC, um, you know, performer multiple times, He's going to be among some of the the highest, you know, ranked transfers probably this offseason in general, not just um, as of right now. And he's getting to it early. He's going to get to it ahead of the spring wave that we see, um, which is a big factor in this. And that, you know, he's going to get there before a lot of these kids do after they go through their spring practice um, and they kind of fall out. He'll be able to kind of, you know, have his choice of the litter. Uh, between the teams who really decide to go after him. Uh, Nick, do you know of if there's already somewhat of a short list, whether through, you know, on three or two, four, seven? Uh, not, not specifically. This, it, it kind of came out last night. I'm not even sure if he's officially in yet okay. or not or made any official announcement, but there were reports. I know on three, uh, uh, was was among the first two four seven among the first. Um, uh, so it's it's possible that some of that is happening sort of as we record, but yeah. um, I'm not aware of anything official just yet. Understood. And Nick, uh, you actually said that there's another big name that just popped up potentially entering the portal. WKU edge Jock Evans. He was limited by injuries last season but another guy that just stepped into the portal here is there a spot maybe weak at edge where you would like to see him uh step into and get some playing time uh i mean so in 2022 evans had a huge year very disruptive pass rusher um and kind of like you know offensive lineman as a whole tackles in particular uh you can't have too many edge rushers so it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if uh, somewhere in the SEC uh, might be where he was looking to end up, um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, we're we're, we're looking at uh, some of the highest and lowest, uh, you know, levels of returning production on the defensive line as well. Teams like Mississippi State pop out to me. Um, I mean, Houston is is uh, in the in the mix, just looking at at uh, pass rush snaps in particular. Let me pull up our trusty 2022 returning production database, and the teams on the very very low end right now: uh, Oregon State, UCLA, Washington, Texas Tech, uh, Duke, Ole Miss. Ole Miss is in on every. <laughs> Every player, for the most part, and, and pass rushers seems like they could use a so so. Right now, let me go ahead and say that Ole Miss is going to be offering uh, Jock or Jacquez Evans pretty soon. Uh, I would I would have to expect probably already got a certified letter uh, delivered to his door five minutes after here. Um, we did have a little bit more uh, transfer portal news. Safety Keon Saab from Michigan ended up at Alabama and Washington tight end Josh Cuevas also ended up there. Uh, those two now gives new Bama head coach Kalen DeBoer eight transfers in the cycle. The tide rank number 11 in the 247 transfer portal rankings. Saab was likely to start for the Wolverines and could help uh, replace some production of Caleb Downs for Alabama in the secondary. So a couple uh, more big names moving to Alabama. Not a surprise that Bama gets the transfers, but those are two pretty solid names. Yeah, for sure. And I think Saab is, is uh, I mean, he was productive. Uh, wasn't a full-time starter, but uh, played in almost every game and and uh, made things happen. Was expected to to step in and, and play a lot, be one of the you know top uh, contributors in the secondary in 2024, I would imagine. So he's a big loss for Michigan and, and a good get for Alabama. Um, not sure he's going to be able to replace downs uh, in totality, but definitely uh, helps uh, limit the damage uh, of losing downs. Um, and we mentioned it before, you know, once the Kalen DeBoer hire happened uh, and we saw a lot of guys leaving Alabama, 
to uh, test the waters and, and you know, see what what opportunities might be out there and, and knowing, hey, I'm not going to be playing for Nick Saban anymore. So uh, maybe I don't want to be at Alabama quite as much as I would have otherwise. Um, Alabama is going to be very uh, active in the transfer portal, especially in the second window, bringing guys in. They were able to go out and, and grab uh, Saab, but, um, you know, I would expect that we'll be hearing more uh, players committing to Alabama when that second window opens. And, and it wouldn't shock me at all if they continue to rise up those portal rankings. Uh, Xavier, your thoughts on Bama getting another pair of pretty solid transfers. Yeah, that's huge. I, I think more so than anything, and I've said this before, is, you know, can DeBoer limit the – you know, the drop-off between him and Saban as far as the way that people look at Alabama. And we and I asked the question last time I was on the podcast about this was whether people would still view Bama as Bama or are they going to start viewing, you know, Bama a little bit differently without Saban being there. Um, and him being able to kind of, like I said, like uh, you guys alluded to, being able to soften the blow of some of maybe his biggest, his biggest movers has been huge. Um, and he's somebody who you know, was a solid recruiter at Washington and I think will be one at Alabama. Um, and I think the m most important thing for him right now is to just continue to bring in talent in replacement fashion. Um, if guys leave after after spring, which they may do, uh, then like Nick said, be active in the portal. Um, whatever limits the mass exodus that people are like, you know, attempting to say is going to happen, whether A, this year or B, coming into next year's class, whatever, however you can soften that blow, you do it. Um, and bringing in Keon Saab was great. You know, this was a guy that I think, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not going to say he's a Caleb Downs, right? But he'll be extremely productive. Um, and like Nick alluded to, he, he was going to be a starter. Um, and I think, you know, that's a that's a team that honestly we should probably be looking at a little bit more as far as mass exodus teams post-spring um, is what goes on in Michigan uh, to an extent, right? Uh, we never yeah. – we haven't really seen the mass exodus from Michigan to a degree, uh, but I think maybe that's due in part to guys wanting to say, see how it plays out um, as Michigan continues to go on. And uh, a big chunk of chunk of them graduated too. That's yeah, so. huge. Yeah, right. So a lot of the guys that you maybe would have seen into the portal, you know, obviously getting their diplomas. So I like I like the move. Uh, he should be a day one starter at the very least. Compete for a starting spot off on you know his first day on campus. Um, it should be very productive for him. I love it for him as well. I mean, this is going to be a guy who obviously is going to have the opportunity. Um, he's going to have to take that opportunity, but he's going to have the opportunity to make himself um, a lot of money if he plays well. Uh, being at Bama this year. All right. Now uh, at the end here, we have uh, Nick wanting to tell us about, and this happens as a content creator, someone that. Uh, puts together um, a lot of sheets. I have had this before. You got you got a question or you read a question. I can't remember uh, what it was, Nick, but something sparked in your mind and uh, you went down the rabbit hole on it. So explain <laughs> to us uh, how you came uh, to look at this and uh, what you have provided for us here since you got that uh, spark. Yeah. Uh, so I was studying up actually earlier today, this morning for Good Morning College Football and uh, was reading a, a mailbag at uh, Gopher Illustrated, which is the 247 site that covers uh, Minnesota. Uh, and Ryan Burns was reacting to a question about the uh, preseason or, or regular season win total for Minnesota posted by FanDuel last week. We discussed that on uh, Good Morning College Football, the four and a half was tied for the lowest in the Big Ten with Purdue was a little bit of a surprise given how, uh, you know, consistently competitive Minnesota had been. And what Burns mentioned in his response, why he was a bit surprised at how low that number was, was how much continuity there's expected to be for Minnesota along the line of scrimmage, not just on the offensive line, but the defensive line as well. And, you know, as I've been with uh, Campus to Canton for a while now, I've been thinking a lot more in the you know college fantasy football mindset. Um, and for years, I mean, I've, playing CFF, uh, offensive line continuity is something that is uh, important. You know, it's something that is is kind of a, a second level thing to to keep in mind, especially as you're evaluating running backs and, and things like that. Who who brings back the most 
upfront. And as things have changed, you know, doing adjusted returning production uh, like we do in our CP Winning Edge returning production database is important. But uh, sometimes I still like to look at those raw numbers. Who's coming back? Who's not? And the word continuity is what, you know, sticks out to me. Uh, but I hadn't really ever considered, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to ever, uh, you know, put these two things together, but it, it kind of dawned on me that, you know, in addition to just the offensive line, because as we discussed with Marcus Bryant, I mean, every team in college football could use a Marcus Bryant right now. Um, even these teams that rank very high and, and, you know, bringing back starters on the offensive line. Wouldn't shock me if if even a team that you know has five starters coming back might check in on on Marcus Bryant. You know, would would Oklahoma State with one of the best running backs in college football, arguably the best, and its entire starting lineup in in the offensive line, would they bring in Marcus Bryant? Yeah, maybe. Um, so on the the other side of things, just as highly coveted as you know starting tackles, experienced offensive linemen are. Uh, difference makers on the defensive line are, are highly coveted as well. And so it occurred to me that, you know, it was probably worth throwing some numbers into a spreadsheet and, and seeing just in addition to O-line continuity, uh, what teams really are consistent up front on both sides of the line of scrimmage. So uh, just copied and pasted some stuff from our returning production database, looked at our O-line snaps, our O-line starts, also threw in uh, three numbers uh, that that can not 100%, two of them aren't, aren't 100% defensive line related, but I threw in our defensive line snaps numbers, which are in our sheets, as well as pass rush snaps and tackles for loss. So yeah, it's going to include some linebackers. Yeah, it's going to include some, uh, you know, the occasional safety or corner blitz, whatever. Uh, but for the most part, tackles for loss are, are often considered a, a D-line heavy snap, a stat and pass rush snaps as well. So uh, not super sophisticated. I just uh, also wanted to use a little bit as a filter. I just averaged O-line snaps and D-line snaps and, and took a look at who are the top 20 and the bottom 20. Uh, and the numbers, just for, for the sake, are, are uh, about 75% or higher puts you in that top 20 range, average O-line snaps, D-line snaps. Uh, and then who's on the extreme low end? And I tweeted out a lot of the names on the, the high end, uh, said that we would discuss it a little bit later today. Uh, but on the low end, it's pretty much, uh, I mean, uh, under 40 is, is kind of the, the real danger area. It's about 15 teams, but then up to like 42 and a half percent just to get us to that, that symmetrical bottom 20. Um, but reading off real quick, you know, some of the teams that have the, the most continuity on the line of scrimmage, as I tweeted out. Iowa State, Wyoming, Stanford, Virginia, Virginia Tech, Nebraska, Kentucky, Wake Forest, Kent State, Northwestern, and Ohio State. Those are the top 11, I believe it is, all with 80% or more. Some teams that uh, were very close just there on the cutoff um, of uh, what I tweeted out earlier. Uh, Louisiana, Oklahoma State, USF, East Carolina, Minnesota, Rutgers, Bowling Green, Iowa, and Sam Houston State. So, uh, I, as I tweeted, is this important, you know, kind of thinking, can we actually apply this to, uh, tell us something about 2024? I, you know, I'm not so sure, but I'd rather be on the top end of this list than I would the bottom end, I think. And even though I don't have exactly the same setup for numbers, I, I did kind of a, an approximation looking at 2023 to see, okay, are these, you know, were the teams in this uh, range, uh, did it really pay off for them last season? It's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, but the at the top of the list was Texas A&M. Obviously, it didn't really work out there. Um, they were a better team, but, you know, the head coaching situation uh, didn't end up working out. But going down the list, not necessarily in the same exact order, probably, but, but similar 
uh, as far as numbers go for the top 20. Texas A&M, Boston College, James Madison, UConn, Northern Illinois, North Carolina, Jacksonville State, Ball State, LSU, Cal, SMU, Iowa, FAU, Vanderbilt, Texas, Michigan State, Rutgers, K-State, Penn State, South Alabama. So, you know, there are some good teams there. There's some not so good teams there. There were some outside factors on, on some of those bad teams. Um, but again, like I said, I think I'd rather be on the top end of this number than the bottom end. Um, and so if we're looking for a team, again, like Iowa State, uh, who, who I think is, is going to be a very competitive week in and week out, a team like Stanford, who I expect to be improved, um, you know, a team like Wake Forest, who really ranked low in our team strength power rankings at the end of last year, probably going to be pretty low this year as well. But there's there's a lot coming back on the line of scrimmage. Will that pay off? Will a team like Ohio State, who is number two in a lot of the uh, you know power rating systems right now, probably going to be a solid number two for us, I would expect as well. National championship contender, a team like Oklahoma State, as I mentioned, you know, are they going to be capable of, of competing in the Big 12. I haven't mentioned them enough probably as a Big 10 or excuse me, Big 12 title contender. Um, and a team like Minnesota who we're looking at, hey, that's a pretty low win total. It's a tough schedule, absolutely. But um, I don't know. You know, there, there's there's a lot to like, especially on the line of scrimmage for a team like Minnesota that wants to run the football and stop the run. So can we learn a thing or two about some of these teams? Maybe will it be uh, a major uh, eye-opener to, to be the key to success uh, for, for CFF or win totals or whatever? Probably not. Uh, but I think it's worth noting, filing away, and, and just keeping in mind, okay, who's who's got a pretty pretty nice uh, uh, foundation along right. the line of scrimmage and who doesn't? Right, and I mean, this is one of the old tropes that you hear all the time, right, Xavier, is uh... – the game is one in the trenches. Yep. The war is one in the trenches, right? It's one on the front lines, and uh, that that's what you have. And um, it's kind of crazy that these positions are looked at so unbelievably differently. Like, it, defensive line is the most rotated position in football because you want yep. someone who's gassed up to go out there and take on these tired offensive linemen. You don't switch out the offensive linemen because continuity is very, very key, which leads to, you know, why we find these important, you know, the, these two spots very important. And the fact that returning production is coming back on the line is just so big. And I, you know, I think you can look at the way these teams scheme a little bit and say that it's obvious, like it's obviously bigger for Iowa who doesn't have a lot of passing, um, to get their offensive line back and their defensive line back because they want to run the ball and keep the, the score low. So your thoughts on, you know, what Nick put together here and just overall your thoughts on returning production on the O-line and the D-line. No, I love it. I think it's extremely important. And I think sometimes we get hyper-focused on maybe what a team misses on the outside. Right. And obviously we get, you know, we get extremely, you know, into the weeds about what they're going to be missing at quarterback, but this is just as important. Um, right. And, and, and the continuity of a team and whether or not a team can actually compete at the highest level is going to be based a lot of times on what their offensive line can and cannot do. And if their defensive line can get pressure with four or whether they're going to have the same places kind of throughout the year. And I think for a lot of these teams, especially teams like in Ohio State, it can be somewhat of confirmation bias. Right. Like when you watch Ohio State next year. I fully expect that defense and that, and that team to be rather, you know, to kind of hit the ground running. Uh, right. And, and I would expect more importantly for, you know, teams that don't have it to maybe take a second, maybe take a beat on, on you know, what we see wrong starting early on in the year. Um, and it's why a team, you know, that, that maybe has a ton of over, you know, overhaul on their offensive line starts the year off, you know, kind of figuring themselves out in the run game. And then by the end of the year, you're like, oh, where did this run team come from? Why in weeks one through six were they so bad? Well, they had, you know, four new starters and one guard return. You know, they had about 25 percent 
percent of returning production on that offensive line. Well, then that's why, you know, you would see an offense that, you know, maybe sputtered as a running team to start off and now has hit their stride, right? Similar to what we saw at Washington last year. Uh, when we saw guys like Dylan Johnson all of a sudden kind of explode midway through the year, everybody was like, well, where did this necessarily come from? Um, and some of it could be continuity on the O-line. Some of it could be Dylan Johnson finally being the out-and-out running back. But also that has to do with continuity on the offensive line, right? Uh, sometimes some backs want you to always make sure you pick up the edge. Some guys are like, look, let him go. I'll make that first guy miss and you guys worry about getting to the second level. Um, and so there's, there's different, you know, unique aspects here that when you focus on returning production, this is why it's one of my favorite stats to use when I'm in conversations with uh, the common folks. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably my go to. When I talk about teams going from year to year, uh, I, I, I love to hit on the fact that whether a team is returning a ton of talent or not and what we should then expect from them in that regard. Uh, teams that typically return a lot of production, um, good or bad, I typically kind of favor or lean towards what their previous record was the, the, the year before. Um, and kind of go, they could probably do that again. Or in the bad case, they might end up doing this again. Um, you know, um, on the flip side, if you don't have any production uh, returning or very little, I kind of try to stay away from predict from projecting you too high, but I'm also kind of trying try to stay away from you projecting you too low as well because you could surprise us because we don't necessarily know the players or have seen said players, um, you know, play for you um, at, at a high level. So I, I love this. I'm big on the one thing I'm big on, especially as we continue with, you know, the transfer portal being as volatile as it is, is how much this number actually matters in the sense of you know, guys like Jared Verse, right, who come out of Albany, you know, G5 pickup, go to Florida State, crush it. And it's like, well, we didn't have you in the returning production, buddy. We did not see this coming whatsoever. You have wowed us in that regard. On the flip side of that, you know, looking at, you know, and this isn't to crack on him in particular, but you look at a JT Daniels going to Rice, and you're like, well, where, you know, you, where he necessarily wasn't the greatest, we also didn't see that coming. We, had, we didn't know that that was a part of it um, and where teams may, where people may have projected higher for Rice due to the fact that JT Daniels was there. When you looked around him and you realized maybe, you know, last year, and obviously I don't have that number on hand, but last year if Rice was somewhere in the range of 40 or 50 percent in returning production. You go, well, it's not surprising that it took them a while to to look better, even though they added a piece that, you know, may have been more talented than that was already on display. So I love the returning production num numbers. Um, it doesn't necessarily surprise me too much um, with some of the schools that I see on here as well. I feel like every two or three years, Kentucky gives you an O-line that, you know, is borderline top 10, borderline top 15 in the country. Um, you know, going back to Canard uh, and Company maybe two or three years ago where they were one of the – them and Benny Snell being one of the best running teams in the nation. Um, you know, now we're two, three, four years removed from that. Not necessarily all too surprising. Lastly, it'll show you, and more importantly, it'll show you kind of the volatility that these teams are, you know, experiencing on their own teams. I expect to see a lot of G5 teams in returning production being very low. Um, you know, I expect to see your 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 James Madisons. I expect to see uh, your UTEPs, your Toledos. Um, heck, I even expect to see some of your Houston's on here. And obviously, well, if you have really big talent on those teams, they yeah. jump up a level, right? Right. So, yeah. So I kind of expect teams like that or teams like we see with Washington that had their coach leave slash, you know, had a lot of guys enter the draft slash graduate all decide to go on at one time. So your returning production is supposed to be low. Like I fully expect them to be at the bottom for a lot of these lists uh, because I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I can name most of the talent that's coming back um, and the talent that is either a has gone off to Alabama or, you know, be your Will Rogers and you tried to leave, but now you're back. So like, you know, I, <laughs> You know, I just I'm not surprised by that. But I do love returning production. It's one of my favorite stats as Nick has. Um, and it's why you should, you guys should uh, subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Nice plug at the end there, too. He's a <laughs> professional, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Xavier Trish, father of the year. Follow him on the Twitter at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. Nick at CFB Winning Edge. Myself at Bogman Sports. I think that's it. We're like just a shade under an hour. Uh, I know you guys are probably saying what happened to this show when you're looking at the runtime. What's going on here? <laughs> are the guys okay? We're fine. It is February, uh, so that there's a little less news in the early preseason. Can't call it the offseason. People get mad. Uh, but that is going to wrap it up for us this week. Uh, come back next week where, for, for sure, something crazy will have happened in the next three to four hours after we record this show. Right, Nick? And then yeah. you, we're we'll, probably we'll going to be talking about new Georgia state head coach 
fill in the blank. Right. Uh, and I'll, I'll probably throw together another set of numbers that that uh, we'll spend a little time on. Which, by the way, hopefully you're still listening to us. Uh, you know, Xavier mentioned, yeah, please do sign up our campus to Canton uh, Discord community and specifically the C2C Winning Edge tier uh, member channels. I put the full database for these numbers that we talked about in there already. And usually I will, if I just throw together a quick, you know, Excel spreadsheet and, and play around with some numbers a little bit, oftentimes I'll just drop that file in that, in the discord. So it's available to our uh, C2C winning edge and, and all 22 tier members. So you can look at all 134 teams and, you know, do your own calculations. If, if you think I'm doing the, you know, working, looking at the wrong stuff. So, um, if you're just in for, interested in the in the raw data, um, you know, oftentimes when I do this sort of thing, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you access to that as well. All right. Well, that is uh, it for us today. Remember, you can find us uh, next week uh, and, you know, check out Nick's show every single day. Good morning, college football on the campus of Canton YouTube. He brings in guests whenever he can, too. So if you want to stay up on the most recent news check out that daily show that Nick has going. That is it for us. We will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. <laughs>